0: Welcome to the Harrisonburg 360 podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Liskey. The Harrisonburg 360 podcast is an attempt to capture and record narratives of immigrants living in the Harrisonburg community. Using past and present voices of Harrisonburg immigrants, students in our JMU English class have collaborated to create a space focused on the importance of listening to each other's voices. Every person deserves a chance to share their story, and we, as a class, are privileged to share these stories with you in hopes of expanding perceptions of what it means to be an immigrant in Harrisonburg. Each week, Harrisonburg 360 is produced by a different team of students. This week's episode, The Huddled Masses, was produced by Carrington Balser, Kelsey Liskey, and Corinne Martin. In this week's episode, we'll be sharing the stories of two refugees, Nasser al-Sadan and Z. al Within these two narratives, we hope to draw connections between their experiences immigrating to America and the lives that lay ahead of them in Harrisonburg. We explore each of their stories and the nature of their inclusion in the immigrant population, the huddled masses, as Emma Lazarus says in her poem The New Colossus, made famous by its placement on the Statue of Liberty. However, Nasser al and Z Al-Qatar's stories, instead, reveal the personal hardships, motivations, and human spirit that makes each story entirely individual. Nasser Al-Sadan was interviewed by Daniel Brennan in April of 2009 as a part of the Shenandoah Valley Oral History Project, currently located in the James Madison Library's Special Collections. Al-Sadan shares his life and experiences as a refugee, starting with his work alongside the United States Army during the war in Iraq. He describes the violence his family faced because of his work as a translator, and after a year and a half, being asked, "'Do you want to leave?' as his country becomes increasingly dangerous." He accepts the chance to come to America and discusses how aid and assistance programs in the United States really function for immigrants and refugees like him. As he becomes more familiar with the Harrisonburg area, al sees an abundance of immigrants from Iraq. His observation raises questions about what that number really signifies.
1: I walked with the United States with the U.S. Army as an interpreter. And for that reason, the militia kidnapped my father and tried to chase me because anyone there working with the U.S. Army will kill, will be killed by by the militia. And uh, so, after kidnapping my father, they they killed. So we couldn't stay there. I took the uh, entire my family my family, and and we moved to Syria, and from Syria to Lebanon. They they ask you, you want to go to America? If not, you may stay another. Two or three years. Meaning that. You don't have choice. You need to accept to any country. Because you are illegal. In this country that you are in. So you need to leave, to move. To leave. So it, at that day. If if they said to me. Die Is accepting you. Wanted to go? Yes. That's something too. I, I will tell them. Yes I, I want to go. Because you are chased by. By the police there although you are a refugee or chasing you because you are illegal so imagine that if, if any of the country that say uh, uh, the United States uh, United Nation telling you that this country is accepting you do you accept they so would say yes and when you hear America uh, maybe this is the, the biggest country in the world and the strongest and most richest country. So you definitely, you will you will say that I'm a lucky man.
0: In this portion of the interview, Al-Sidhan distinguishes the concept of choice, or in this case, the lack thereof. As a refugee, he is aware that his position in both Iraq and Syria during the early 2000s erased his ability to choose where he would like to go. Though if possible, the only place he would have wanted to be is in Iraq. The conflict in the Middle East had developed in its entirety, and the efforts to occupy the country left it as a war-zone district. At that time, civilians in the area were subject to danger. Soldiers and civilians were indistinguishable. The chance of being killed was high, and there was really no safe place to be within those borders. Al-Sadan, as a translator for the United States Army, was in an even greater position, as his occupation made him an accomplice to the enemy forces. The kidnapping and killing of his father after his cooperation with the U.S. military proved this to be true. And it's from there that his option to stay in the premises was dissolved and his journey as a refugee began. At this point in the narrative, al perception of America prior to arriving is also noticeable. He regards it with a degree of honor because of its size and strength. But once he arrives in Harrisonburg, that view is severely altered by the lack of assistance his family received. And he continues with a harsher opinion of what aid programs provided and in what ways his own morality for helping people shaped his experience.
1: Because when you help person or anybody, uh, you expect that you will get uh, he will help you in advance, uh, in in a term. Okay, that's something normal. That I help you this time, you will help me next time. So when I came here and see there's no help and nothing, uh, uh, no one will, uh, will ask about you. Well, I said that Well, I lost my father because of my working with the U.S. Army. I didn't care because my work was like to help people, to translate, to see people, their needs. And so in return, the U.S. must help us. And the refugees that are in the area, are most of them from your area or are they from all over the Middle East? Well, mostly from Iraq now. Yeah mostly from iraq uh, well actually there are some refugees that we can see them that they are in good manner well, i don't know i'm not sure of that i, I can tell you that because some of them are from russia they are in good and good manner why why especially us why only people from coming from iraq suffer
0: It is in his descriptions of American assistance that we get a truer sense of who al is. His belief about what it means to help people and address the needs of others in that time of crisis overpowered whatever internal emotion he had even about his own father's death. And yet he still didn't receive assistance in finding new work or a place to live. He was left alone with a wife and a very young child. This belief, and the expectation that the United States would acknowledge his contribution to the conflict, largely shapes what he perceives about the country. His connection to the military also gave Al-Sudan a closer look at American administration and politics. Perhaps it's his individual perspective of the system that motivates him to advocate for refugees like himself and encourage American assistance. As someone who provided help without receiving any in return, he's able to see the faults in the American system, and acknowledges the ways that America could do better for those who follow him. Once established in the Harrisonburg community and in the immigrant population as a whole, Nasser al-Sudan raises an interesting question about the number of refugees from Iraq in Harrisonburg. Why were there so many? What brought such a large amount to the Shenandoah area? Why do they suffer more once arriving? Though tensions in the Middle East had been on the rise for quite some time, the war in Iraq officially began in 2003 when President George W. Bush, despite the United States lacking a well-formulated strategy for occupying the country, began an operation designed to invade and disarm what was known as the Iraqi Weapons of Mass Destruction, or WMD, and to end the rule of Saddam Hussein, the revolutionary leader of the Social Party in Iraq. The violence between armies and militias was known for being particularly gruesome, but what is more noticeable was the danger for civilians in the area. Citizens and soldiers were indistinguishable. United States combatants fired anyone that hadn't evacuated the war zone and bombed large cities, The Iraqi soldiers killed anyone that cooperated with the American forces and led a reign of terror for the duration of their rule. The majority of government or public institutions were squandered, and the severe loss of any developed infrastructure left the citizens with little to nothing. As the conflict accumulated, around 4 million Iraqi citizens were displaced. Some claimed refugee status in Syria and Lebanon, but the number one country for the resettlement of these people was the United States. So what created the poor treatment of these immigrants? Why did we seem particularly unwelcoming? The war's close proximity to the terrorist attack on 9-11 might be an ample explanation, despite the fact that Al-Sudan reports these mistreatments in 2009, years after the initial intensity of negative sentiments around Middle Eastern immigrants. Today, as the topic of immigration becomes more debated, the climate of our country does not seem to be warming up to immigrant populations. Nasser al sedan still lives in Harrisonburg. He's a language professor at James Madison University and Bridgewater College, and is also involved with multiple businesses in the area. He's a constant advocate for enriching the culture of the community and assists new immigrants and refugees as they transition to American life. In al Sedan's interview, in the historical facts of the war, we see reflections of the story of Z Al-Qatar, like Al-Sadan, see, who is from Iraq, fled to Syria after experiencing an act of violence herself, and nine years later, came to the United States with her two sons. There are obvious similarities in the experiences of our two subjects today, but as we saw in an interview with her this March, her open-minded perspective and passion for storytelling makes her story unparalleled among millions of immigrants. Z was interviewed by Corinne Martin this spring in one of James Madison's libraries. She came ready to share her story and spoke openly about her immigration process and the violence that erupted in Iraq. Though as she continues describing her life, she shares more about what she hopes to accomplish while in the United States, receiving a master's in English, writing a best-selling book, and creating a positive face for her community here. Her story here is explained with a description of her life in Syria and the intense chain of events that led her to America. Um, So war happened there.
2: And I was pregnant with my second child uh, and that uh, delayed our uh, travel. And they, they told us, it, we, we were going to the United States and you have no other option. And so I was like, okay, I guess we're going. Uh, but the country was burning very fast at that time. It was. We lived at the bottom of a mountain, and then there were the rebels at the top of the mountain, and then the Syrian army um, next to us. We were in the middle between the fight, and there were long nights that I had to cover one of my kids, uh, fearing that the bullets will hit them, because it was big windows and everything. Um, it was... It was something I'll never forget uh, I'm not sure if that would be acceptable for the session to say. uh There were big arches at the beginning of every city, and on that arch of my city, it was very close to my apartment uh They used to hang people there every other day. The Syrian army would hang the rebels and every other day the rebels would hang the Syrian army over there, and it was I had to cover my, my kids' eyes if we went to the UN, so they, they will not see any of that. Uh, but then we, we did leave, and they closed the airport. We left at 6 p.m. of July 29th of 2012. They closed the airport the second day at 7 in the morning. We locked out big time. And then the owner of the apartment uh, called us after two weeks. He said, I am very thankful you guys left because the apartment was blown out with an attack, attack.
0: Her story is deserving of attention, but even as someone that survived near-death experiences almost every single day, her problems didn't stop after coming to the United States. In public and at work, she was a target for negative comments and questions, including politically charged misconceptions that her ethnicity was associated to the illegal distribution of weapons. And yet, she still has hopes that people will accept her as the peaceful United States citizen she is.
2: Harrisonburg, I felt they were very welcoming, and the other half, they were just, go home. And, or, uh, I'm not kidding, one of them was asking me about all kinds of weapons. I was like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. Do you see me like a weapon person, or do I sell weapons? I've been harassed a couple times for that, um... I mean, I'm only two shades of white, (laughs) but um, I really hope that people don't see me as a threat because I really mean peace and mean well for everyone.
0: Like Nasser Al-Zidane, Z experienced both the mistreatment because of where she's from and the neglect to provide any assistance at all. In her eyes, the ability to speak English upon arriving to America was enough for people to look the other way leaving her mostly on her own to forge through endless documents and policies that apply to United States immigration, taxes, and insurance programs. Because of this, she has an underwhelming sense of connection and community in Harrisonburg, and often misses her own culture and the sense of safety and solidarity that is associated with it.
2: Not as an organization, no, because they saw that I speak English and they said, oh, you don't need anything, that's it, you're on your own, which I know the English, The language but I don't know the culture that is big difference Um, I I feel that they should be more aware of that Um, I had no idea how to do my taxes I had no idea how to apply for health insurance or car insurance or how to buy anything here other than grocery (laughs) but um, I had uh, I had some good friends who helped me through they got my back and I'm very thankful for that. Other than that, I, I'm on my own. Mm. I miss a lot of my own culture. It's um, it's very close. Um, you feel that, how do I say it? If you're my sister or one of my relatives, I have to make sure that you're okay, even if I have to beat you up. It's kind of that thing that mentality I have to make sure that you're good and I'm good Um, here it's not much I've seen parents that they have not seen their kids for years and that kills me I really hope that I don't end up like that with my kids because they're the only ones I have here and all my family's um, overseas I like how someone may be facing a funeral or uh, something bad or some, or even a wedding. Um, I like the community, they just chip in and they help each other with that. I like that. I like it so much. It happens so quickly here. I'm very surprised. Um, I'm very proud of that. I like it. Um, I don't know. I wish wish there would be a face for my culture here, a, a positive presence. To show people that not all different people from here are a threat. That is all I wish for, but we'll see.
0: By bringing attention to the lack of resources that would make American life easier, Zee and al both supplement a worthy argument against the stereotype that immigrants and refugees don't do enough and are inherently less likely to succeed in our country. It's easily imaginable that if the immigration system were to be more attentive to those who came into the country, rather than leaving them to face those obstacles on their own, they would find the support they've lacked in their new lives in America. Immigrants and refugees have found their own routes to success despite these obstacles, but there is no doubt that it would be valuable to give them the help they need in order to make that transition smoother. These narratives are in and of themselves advocates for immigration reform. In order to see the kinds of successes we ask for from immigrants, we have to adjust the system to provide them with the resources, opportunities, and knowledge they need to do so. Z has the intense escape story, countless interactions of harassment in the Harrisonburg community, and the experience of being on her own for quite some time. And despite all of these things, she has a particularly positive attitude that radiates in her ambitions, the goals she has for the future, and the advice she gives to others. When asked what she hoped others would take away from hearing her story, she responded with exceptional points that are applicable and relevant to all.
2: Don't ever be too proud to ask for help. Um, don't step on your pain as if it's nothing. We learn from pain. We learn from our needs. It's Without, without them, we wouldn't be doing a lot of inventions and everything. Um, I would really hope people would let go of the stereotype things, like, if you're in my religion, you're the same, you're a good person. No. People are good and evil everywhere, every religion, every culture. I've seen it. I cannot emphasize harder on it. it doesn't matter what people think you do what makes you happy that's what I wish people would focus on um, as long as you're not causing any pain or harm to anyone or yourself be at peace that is if people would embrace that trust me there wouldn't be any war or any fight um, I wish people would not embrace politics as if they embrace their family or anything. Believe me, politics will not... I mean, if you look at politicians, they don't even know your name, they don't know anything about you. Why do you think they would care about what you would need or what you wouldn't need? They're that, if you just realize that, it is not a good reason for you to fight others or I've seen on Facebook and I've seen in families, they just break apart because of, of political issues. I was like, does that really matter? It's a very silly reason that people will focus on. I hate politics, <laughs> if, if you didn't notice that. Uh, they, they, they just ruin lives. You do what you think right and that is all don't let that be your label you don't ha- you don't need a label you are a human that is it that's all i want to see- say
0: z currently lives in the shenandoah area with her two sons she hopes to return to school to study english and most importantly to have her writing published and enjoyed by all she also hopes that one day she might return to iraq to see the family members that still reside in that area Both Nasser and Zee experience a shared history as citizens experiencing violence in Iraq and Syria, and eventually again as refugees in the United States. Their shared history could easily label them as merely part of the huddled masses, as refugees. However, their stories reveal just how complex and different they actually are. Al-Sidane has a rare perspective that developed through his translating for the United States and the emphasis that he places on helping others. Zee has an exceptional stance on what she wants to see in the world, and how she wants the world to view people like her. There are refugees from all over the world, from all walks of life, and the fact that two refugee stories sharing so many similarities are still so different is a testament to the fact that each refugee and each immigrant has their own story to share. The huddled masses are composed of individuals, and individual stories, each of their own value. To identify them all together is to risk dehumanizing these people and their stories. Each refugee, no matter how similar the origin, has faced different struggles to overcome, endured their own losses, and found the unique thing that motivates them forward. Their stories are just as complex as every other person, if not more. That's why it's necessary that we hear their voices, and we see them beyond being part of a larger statistic. We're then able to recognize the stark humanity found in these stories, free from any label beyond being simply human. In the lives of Nasser al-Sadan and Zee al-Qatar, we discover far more than their immigration stories. When we identify refugees as only one large group, limiting them to a single narrative, we lose the pure value of someone's humanity and the contribution that makes within a life story. Beyond their experiences as refugees, these people are humans, with stories that impact communities all over the world. When we meet the faces among the huddled masses, we welcome them, and accept them not as immigrants or refugees, but as themselves simply and powerfully human. Thank you for joining us today on Harrisonburg 360. We're grateful to our sponsor, Dr. Fagan, those from the Jamie Libraries, Nasser Al-Sadan, and our interviewee, Z. Elcatur for helping make this episode possible. Our host today was Kelsey Liske. Our interview with Z. Elkater was conducted by Corinne Martin. Research and content producers were Kelsey Liske, Carrington Balser, and Corinne Martin, and audio producers were Carrington Balser and Corinne Martin. Join us next time on Harrisonburg 360. Harrisonburg 360. Real people. Real stories. One community.